Hey, yo, hey, Yakamaland. Hey, hey, here we are. Hey, hey, climbing from the line. Hey, 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 let's stay start hey, this talk. Vamos hey. falar, solta o verbo, estamos aqui pra apavorar. Aí, juventude, fica ligada. Lorena chegou aqui na parada. Vamos falar. Climate change, climate mitigation, o que você pode fazer pra melhorar a sua vida e de todo mundo que tá perto aí? Good morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you may be. My name is Alfredo and you are now tuned in to the Climate Frontline podcast. In this show, we have an opportunity to engage with a range of people. Folks who are leading different industries. We have community leaders or organizers in different sorts of social movements. We also speak with artists who are doing all sorts of art. And we engage with these folks to really change the narrative, the climate narrative, by putting the microphone or the spotlight closer to those communities who are at the front line of climate change. And the community here, our community that we're cultivating here, does this one conversation at a time. So today, I have the opportunity to speak with Michelle De Paz. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Alfredo. So awesome to be here in your house. And this is now the fourth conversation of my tour through the Pacific Northwest. And thank you for welcoming me into your house here in, in Northeast Portland. Well, it's been a challenge, you know, with COVID um, to have people inside my house. But, so I appreciate the safety protocols that we've taken. Um, it's wonderful to see you in person. And although we can't hug, you know, and we're 10 feet apart, um, it's still great to, to have you here and to be able to welcome you into my home. Yeah. And as you know, uh, it's important, at least in this show, it has become a tradition to acknowledge the land that we are on right now. So... I know you did a little bit of research and, and have engaged with different folks, so I'll allow you to root us into, into this space. Sure. So thank you. So um, the Portland metro area where we're sitting right now rests on traditional village sites of the Multnomah, Wasco, Cowlitz, Kathlamet, Clackamas, Bands of Chinook, Tualatin, Kalapuya, Molala, and many other tribes who made their homes along the Columbia River. Indigenous people have created communities and summer encampments to harvest and enjoy the plentiful natural resources of this area for the last 11,000 years. Um, Portland is home to um, a large population of urban Native Americans, and um, I'm 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 just acknowledging where we're sitting and where we're where we're talking from. Yeah, as as I understand it as well, this was a place where a lot of peoples, a lot of tribes, nations came together and it's just important to acknowledge the diversity of folks who came together as as a place to exchange resources, be in relationship with Mother Earth, be in relationship with each other. So that is where we are at at this moment in time. And I am excited to speak with you, Michelle, on various topics. But for the audience who may not know who you are, could you just share a little bit of Uh, your trajectory in life and maybe your favorite food or something like that? Sure. So my name is Michelle DePass. Um, I use she, her pronouns. I'm the product of a black Southerner, um, French Creole a person, woman, my mother, and a Panamanian dad who uh, were, of course, limited uh, at the time they got married in the, in the late 1950s to who they married. And so you had to marry within your race. My parents are both African-American, or I should say African origin. Um, I spent my early years, I was born here in Portland, Oregon, spent my early years here in Portland and Eugene, Oregon, Venezuela, Mexico, Washington, D.C. So my family moved around a lot. Sometime in there, my, uh, my mother and father got divorced and my mother joined the Black Panthers. And so my mother's job was literally to manage the breakfast program that Um, I mean, that was her job, raising um, my siblings and I and working in the breakfast program and then also helping to set up the liberation school. And um, 
you know, for a black family, we were a little unusual in that, you know, here we were living in a commune. At, at some point, my mother um, decided that we would be vegan, you know, in the 70s when there wasn't a vegan aisle. Um, it was very embarrassing at that time to be black and vegan, that, you know, we were the only ones. And and yet, you know, looking back, I'm I'm so appreciative of how I grew up and the opportunities I got, that I was safe my whole life and... Um, got access to people like Angela Davis. I, I literally made Angela Davis a pie when I was 12 years old. Um, she was visiting uh, Portland, and I got to make her a cherry pie, and that was like one of the highlights of my career. That is awesome. <laughs> I actually have a, if you look behind you, there's a wall dedicated to artwork of Angela Davis. Oh, yeah, there is a wall right there for Angela To, ladies. you know, just to illustrate, you know, literally illustrate with photographs and paintings and and wood blocks how transformative and how important she was to me as a 12 as an adolescent yeah well thank you so much for being here and i'm excited to speak with you well actually i also want to hear more about this story of angela davis and many other panthers right i think of uh asada shakur i think of many other folks who whose names are not said enough and whose stories are need to be more front center in, in the environmental movement for sure. And so, yeah, I also want to uh, l- let the audience know, uh, you may have seen a video out there on, on some of my thoughts on Presidio Graduate School. And uh, Michelle is actually a graduate from what was then... Uh, Pin- Pinchot or was it B- uh, Bain- Bainbridge Graduate Institute? Yeah, yeah. I attend. I attended that, and I did not graduate. I attended for about two and a half years of the three-year program. Um, at the time, I was raising two kids and paying a mortgage, and um, really liked the program. But what what I what I what I what I thought of as a failing at that time, I'm able to now to better articulate, and the program was not set up for people like me to be successful in. Um, I, I feel like the program is grounded in, in white environmentalism and at the time did have a, a focus on social justice, but it was social justice that was for people in, in developing countries and not recognizing. I never heard during my experience there that the U- that U.S. capitalism was was based on a foundation of that slavery um, was a part of the foundation, and a recognition that of the labor of Black people in this country, and so I'm walking around feeling bad the whole time I'm there, and it's just in, in this gorgeous setting, recognizing that part of my history and part of me is not being acknowledged yeah. or elevated or recognized or appreciated and. And just how hard it was for me as a single parent um, with not much of a job at the time uh, just to get there. Yeah. Uh, and and, and in, in my cohort, I, had, I was attending with millionaires, uh, a couple in particular, and just feeling like such an outsider, you know, economically, um, knowing that the program was, you know, it was, it was my goal to finish the program, but just seeing how hard it was very very difficult it got very difficult so the the experience with what was then bainbridge institute now presidio graduate school is only one piece of how your perspective on education is just so special at least for me I, i really appreciate it because when when i hear you share your stories of education traditional ways verbal ways uh, non-conventional ways, I think we get a closer look at at, at how big education, quote-unquote education is, because it's not just books, right? It's not just books. And I'm excited to talk with you today about your experience with that. And as you know, in the show, we have a, a strong focus on language. And I, the first question that I have for you, Michelle, is around what this Metropolitan Learning Center was or is now. Can you just share a little bit about that? Absolutely. So I I just want to go back on something that you touched on, though, and you talked about you raised the question of education. And so my both of my parents are educators. 
um, they're both retired. They're in their um, 80s right now. My, my dad is a economist um, that never got tenure anywhere and taught at American University at UCLA part-time um, and other and at the University in Guadalajara uh, when we lived in Guadalajara. Um, my mother's an elementary education student, and, and both of my step-parents were also my stepmother is a, um, a Dutch native who trained at Montessori educators. And so education was, especially being from a black family, very, very important. Um, and we had our ideas about it. And so I think that your question kind of call, you call into question, what are we teaching the kids? Who's teaching them? You know, what is important to know? And so I think that, so you asked about the Metropolitan Learning Center. That, um, it's colloquially known as MLC um, here in Portland. It's been around since the early 1970s. And I went there 1974 through 1978 when I graduated. My mother called the school Camp Runamuck. In other words, there were no grades. We didn't call that. We called the teachers by their first names. There was no attendance. There weren't even hardly any classes. It was a very much experiential school. Uh, we went to the beach and the mountains and the desert, you know, just on a whim. Like in the morning, you'd show up and they'd say, who wants to go to the beach? Um, in lieu of traditional, you know, classrooms with desks, um, I know one of the primary one of the primary rooms, the first through third, um, had a, a jungle gym inside the room. And so there's a film that was made about MLC, one of the kids, you know, who's an adult now, a responsible, you know, tax-paying adult, says that he spent his whole second grade year just swinging. You know, he never even learned how to read until the end of the year. And so it was very much a kind of hippie-fied, um, experiential learning palace where we focused on creative writing and creative arts and critical thinking. And it was all ages, so very unusual to have kids from 5 to 18 all in one building. Um, with teachers as peers and very few classes at the high school level. We were very much encouraged to go out and learn things that we were interested in. Um, and so if you were self-guided, um, you could have a mentor in the, in the building. And I was encouraged to um, attend another high school part-time. So I literally, in my last two years, attended a performing arts high school in town in the traditionally um, African-American neighborhood of North Portland and go to Metropolitan Learning Center, and I was able to graduate from Metropolitan Learning Center with a very strong dance background. Yeah, and I believe it was the, the only, I think you mentioned earlier, the only thing they had you turn in was your journals to reflect on, right? Yes. And I thought that was so cool because to me, that's what you should be teaching youth in, at such an early age, you know, like, the power of reflection, because so oftentimes I think they dive into these educational institutions that are there set out to, they, they literally give, uh, there was another speaker in the show, his name is Colin, they literally give you numbers, right? You're a number when you go into schools. And so there's a, a element of dehumanization that takes place when you go to schools and and the situation you described to me where you are having youth just reflect, that seems pretty humanizing to me, you know? Like, yes. you, you can learn how to be more emotionally intelligent. You can learn how to have respect for your elders. You can learn how to listen, which is actually really big, you know, in, in this day yeah. in society. So I really like that. And so to kind of move us along, I'm, I'm curious to know. So I immigrated to the States and... When I started to attend high school and learn about the United States, what we refer to as United States, a.k.a. Turtle Island, right? I remember clearly reading some history books. And I remember there was one page that covered Native American history in the United States and the black African-American uh, experience in the United States. And it was... Not not longer than the page, right? And so that is the su that's the subject or the curriculum that we I was exposed to, and I think many people across the United States are exposed to. And really, the only opportunity that you're gonna learn about these things. So, tell me a little bit of how is it that we end up 
in this situation where the history is covered in one page and because I know you're in, in, engaged with the school board and yeah, walk me through how do, how do we end up with, with this situation in right. schools? No, it's a, that's a really big set of questions. Um, I am on the Portland school board. I ran for election in 2019 after having taken a, a course uh, from the Emerge Network of Training. It trains Democratic women to run for office throughout the country. We have a pretty strong chapter here in Oregon. I took the training in 2017 for the sole purpose of supporting other women running for office. Never in a million years would I thought I would do this. And in 2019, um, an audit of the Portland Public Schools came across my desk, and I was appalled at the learning outcomes, specifically for African-American kids who were achieving reading in the, at, at, in the third grade at... 19%, meaning that, and that's how it was reported. They didn't say 81% of the kids are, are not reading. They said, you know, 19% of the children are meeting the standard. And that was disturbing to me, knowing what I know about the school-to-prison pipeline. And, um, and, and there's a lot wrong with the way that we're educating kids right now and institutionalizing kind of this, uh, you know, sitting behind a desk um, I just I was recently accepted into a fellowship program for two years from School Board Partners, which is a national, fairly new organization that seeks to whose mission is to create anti-racist school boards. I'm the only person in Oregon, um, though one of the founders is uh, based in Central Oregon, and the other founders are are in Atlanta and New Orleans. Most of my cohort of 25 people or so are people of color, but not all, but, but 90% or more. And I learned this statistic, and that's that the Secretary of Educations have been historically 92% white. Superintendents in this country are 93% white. Principals of schools are 80% white. Teachers are 82% white. Professors at the community college level are 81% white. School boards are 80% white and the chair of those school boards are 96% white. And so when we're talking about learning outcomes and outcomes for kids, you know, 66 years out from Board of Education and, and wondering why we're not able to teach why kids of color aren't achieving or, or why schools, districts aren't able to educate them, and we're looking at who's making the decisions in this pipeline, it's at least 80% white and and... And with that, you know, whether that sounds racist or not, but with that comes a set of, you know, ind indoctrination and, and, and white supremacy and upholding, you know, the status quo um, that to me call out for the reason for changing those statistics around uh, to represent, by the way, the most important statistic I did not share is out of all those, you know, 80% and up um, decision makers in our school districts, our nation's children are 48% kids of color. So the representation uh, and the how we're teaching kids of color is not reaching kids of color. And, and so I feel very committed to, um, I'm on the school board, but I'm also very dedicated to looking at changing the policies, trying to recruit people of color to run on the board, which I've been doing all weekend and have some work to do still tonight. Um, we, as a, as, a, as a nation, as a school district, as communities around the country, are failing the 48% of our kids that are attending our schools. So a, a big part of what I'm hearing is representation of those people who have influence over curriculums, who teaches them, who puts these together, and, and ultimately who and how it's delivered to youth if they have that chance, right? And if they feel connected or, or feel like th that is actually something important to them, which is could be a whole different topic. What, what other things take place besides representation that creates this outcome of, of basically erasing history, right? And yes. telling the story from from a very unique perspective to the point that it disconnects us all. 
Right. So that's that's a really interesting question. It's like, whose history? Who gets to tell the story? And one of my mentors um, is connected to Portland State University, and she's in her 70s. She's still connected. Um, she's a former president of the university, but is currently on the board of trustees and said early on in her career, she was uh, employed by a lab. She's a neurologist. And it was her job as the only sole woman in the office to take notes for their meetings. And she said, I loved taking notes. First of all, she didn't love taking necessarily making the coffee. She did it the first time and then decided very early on to make it a shared responsibility with her colleagues. But she liked taking the notes, and that was because she, when she knew instinctively, I guess, that if somebody was looking back through the notes 10 years in the future, it would be her voice and her hand and her perspective of what happened at the meeting. With history right now, you um, alluded to this, you know, one page of history, Native American history, and a paragraph of African American history. When I rattled off those statistics about, you know, the numbers of, of white people making decisions, that goes throughout the entire supply chain. So the data gatherers and analysts, the people that choose the curriculum, you know, teachers in Portland can choose their own, can choose their own, their own textbooks. Um, they don't necessarily have to be the most progressive or the most anti-racist. So if the textbook that you really like and you're going to advocate for only has one paragraph of African-American history, um, that's what kids are going to get. So all, all this to say it's important to increase diversity of the people making decisions about the curriculum. In Oregon, we have um, adopted a Native American social studies curriculum, and I was just gifted a book um, called The First Oregonians, um, edited by Laura Berg. I've hardly cracked it since I got it a few weeks ago. I have so much reading to do. Um, but but anyway, it's a social studies text um, talking about the Native American experience. We do not have an equivalent for the African American experience, um, though it is being worked on, and that's at the state level. That's the Oregon Department of Education. Again, I'm guessing are probably 90% white people making making um, decisions about what curriculum gets shared in Portland in, in Oregon schools. Okay, well, I'm excited to dive deeper into what is it what is it that we do with all this like like a question that comes up for me right now is how do we get to a place where the the way knowledge, wisdom, and stories are passed on in different communities who may only speak a language and not write it, who may have ancestral knowledge, how do we get to a place where we support that education process and we nurture that rather than force everyone into a kind of cookie-cutter approach? And I'm excited to dive into that question and many other things and we're going to do that after a quick break. We'll be right back. All right. I'll, um, I've done some traveling overseas as well. And when I've traveled, I've wanted to do a number of things. Uh, I've wanted to learn about cultures of other countries, you know, non-Western countries. I've wanted to learn about their spiritual practices, and I've wanted to see their wildlife. You know, I always make an opportunity to, uh, to visit wildlife. And uh, I was in India, and I was in a part of the country called Rajasthan, and a uh, very holy city called Pushkar. And I was, I thought, well, I'm in a really spiritual place. I'm going to meditate. And so I, I sat, and I was quiet. And I started hearing this growling. And I peeked out of one eye. And it was a pack of dogs. And dogs aren't 
very respected in India. They tend to be feral. They tend to be um, just run around in packs and people throw rocks at them. The merchants try to keep them away from their, their, their storefronts and that sort of thing. So I was a little nervous with these dogs sort of hovering around me. And then at some point the dogs kind of backed off and I looked, I peeked out of my other eye and there was a cow standing next to me. And the cow stood there and the dogs stayed away. And the cow, sat, st- the cow stood by me the whole time that I sat in meditation. And when I opened my eyes again, the dogs were gone. And the cow was gone. And the next morning, I woke up and I walked a few, just a few feet from where I had been meditating and I found the cow and the cow was dead. The cow died. And so it's, it's as if that cow had come to give me that experience, that experience of peace that I wanted in that moment. It was, it was serving me in that way. And of course, cows are very revered in India. And so it just made me feel very happy that I, that I was able to have that, that peaceful meditative experience. And it was provided to me by this animal uh, that, that sort of kept, kept those growling dogs away. So anyway, that was, that was that joyful time. <laughs> okay, well, that was Greg Woolley. And you will have an opportunity to find out more about Greg next week at another episode of the Climate Frontline Podcast. So... Be sure to tune in then. Okay, we are now back at the Climate Frontline podcast, the show where we engage with community leaders in different social movements, industries, and artists to change the narrative of climate by putting the communities who are closer to the front line to the mic or to the spotlight or whatever other analogy you want to use. And so I am speaking right now with Michelle De Paz. Thank you so much for having me, Michelle, in, in your house. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Um, I'd love to feed you too, but I mean, this is nice just to visit. We don't get to see each other that often. Yeah, yeah. So, Michelle, the question that I have for you to to kind of start this second part is, how do you define the climate frontline? What does that mean to you? Well, when I think of frontline communities, and I hear that term a lot, I I just my mind goes to island islanders because of the sea level rise. Um, because of their vulnerability to sea level rise, and probably because I, I imagine they have already solved for some of the problems that we that we have. So I think about frontline communities um, just right here at home being those most proximate to landfills, electrical power plants, um, polluting industries, freeways, and, and I mean, I've known this, I've been around the block a few times. I'm, you know, I was born in 1961. And, and so what I know is I know that communities of color tend to be lower income communities just due to structural racism and the places that we can live, we can afford to live, have higher concentrations of heavy metals and noise, pollution, air pollution, and all of the environmental hazards, um, just, just due to what, what we can afford. And so when we talk about climate change and frontline communities, I think about low-income communities, people that might be fishing in polluted rivers, not just fishing for sport, but actually needing to eat the fish, needing the protein, and um, the vulnerability that uh, these communities have. Yeah, I totally agree, agree with you. I, I think a lot of what you said re- resonates with me, and as well as I think... We, we miss some language in describing these folks with a different narrative. So uh, I will explain a little bit of, of what I mean, is that 
you know, the term low income or multifamily tenant or underdeveloped countries, these terms kind of set the president that like, there's not much there, right? Like they need our help. And so therefore uh, I'm an environmental organization. I need to come and help them. Right. And I think there needs to be a change of narrative there because yes, these folks who are at the front line, like you described so adequately, they're also rich. Mm-hmm. They're rich in knowledge. They're rich in culture. They are rich in community. They are rich in relationships and they come up with the most innovative ways to deal with waste problems, to deal with lack of food, to deal with taking care of elders or the youth, figuring out ways to take care of each other when there is no money for babysitting. Many other things, right? And I, I, would just, I love uh, that framing. Um, I, yeah, and I, I and just I wanted did, to put it forward to you. <laughs> yeah, I used that. That that is uh, like following following for myself into a bad trap. And when 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 I actually think of like global communities, celebratory communities, resilient communities, and I come from a community that wasn't served by the city's garbage pickup, and you know, a member of my community, my grandparents' community. Um, thought to pick garbage up. And so he and his son developed an A route and a B route. And this was in the 1940s. And the city recently, not recently, but you know, years ago went to this, like, where we're, we're not going to pick up garbage every week. We're going to pick it up every other week. The black community had already solved for that. I think of another conversation I was in recently, um, looking, um, doing a, a project work with Alberta Main Street. It's a, a, a business district. And doing an organizational assessment of the organization right now at this time, you know, post George Floyd, where we're looking at diversifying the board, diversifying the outcomes and creating a more resilient organization. And in talking with having them one-on-ones with the board, there's a single black board member and she's, I'm going to guess in her sixties and works for black owned business in the, in the, on the street. And as we were talking about, you know, the future of this organization, she, uh, she, the black, the sole black board member is the person that said we should have a campaign to recycle, to grab all the plastics that come out of the businesses from our street because we have two stores that are pet supply stores and we could be, you know, creating a job with someone making dog leashes out of all of the plastic that comes out of the in other words, she was looking at this circular economy idea where we're taking trash and turning it into something that's a commodity that could be sold and also in, in doing so creating a job. This is a person that has not gone to college. This is a person who nobody would look at and say, oh, this is a, a brilliant mind that could figure out what to do with the plastic on our street. And yet out of the four or five people that were on that call, she's the only one that came up with a sustainable solution to a big problem which is plastic yeah and the young boys in new york organized on on topics of waste and they were inspired by the black panthers to to take on some of these environmental justice issues so i think what what the story that you're sharing there is has a draws out in a lot of parallels with with the history of of environmental justice movements social movements and so yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to, to be discussing this with you because uh, they're rich, right? They, they are rich, and I, I think you and I right now, we're here in Portland, Oregon. We have safe water. We're inside a beautiful home. Um, there's not much we can complain about per se, right, in, in this context. Mm-hmm. And for the folks who are at the climate front line, who are actually, like, in front of the, the, the example that comes to me right now is outside the streets of Oakland or maybe even somewhere in Peru where the deforestation is happening. They are surviving, they're pushing hard, and they're still fighting through, smiling, happy. And so that narrative, I'm trying to make space for that narrative, and I know there's happiness there. I know there's joy there. And that's how they go through because they're resilient that way. And yes. So the moment we just say, hey, low income, this, that, and I'm not saying that's not true either, but it, I think there's, it's more than that, right? It's no, more I love than that. this. I, you know, just was uh, in a school board conversation and was saying, 
I am not a victim. You know, I don't feel like a victim. I feel joyous. I'm from a joyous community that, like you mentioned earlier, you know, has celebrations and still has birthday parties. And it's not like, you know, we're, we're aware of the situation around us. And yet in spite of it, we're surviving. We're still having babies. We're, we're raising kids. We're, we're joining the farm workers and, and other movements and, and have been for generations. And through that is it is joy and resilience and connection. And, you know, we talk about indigenous ways of knowing and having those relationships is like, that's social capital. There's actually a term for that. We can be rich in our relationships because it, we're li- we live in an earthquake zone here, and it's not. It doesn't matter. There's going to be an earthquake, and it's not going to matter how much you know canned soup or water I have in my garage. But what is going to matter is do I know my neighbor across the street, and is if I don't see them, are they buried? You know, it's it's knowing being connected. It's this whole idea of being connected that that's that's the wealth. the The money wealth is. It's such a false, I mean, everybody needs enough to be comfortable, um, but you don't get more happy after more money. And, you know, poor communities are very joyous. I grew up in a very poor, a very poor home um, that was just rich with all kinds of other things, smart parents and great food. And, um, you know, we offered people a place to stay, even though we didn't have that much. I mean, it was, it was just, I never felt deprived. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that saying goes, they can take everything away, but they can't take away the culture, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which and I, I have, I mean, my parents are both, you know, my dad's an immigrant again. My mother's a black Southerner. And and um, they that's why they stretched, stressed education was they were like, you know, you can go through ups and downs. No one can take that from you. They can't take away your soul and they can't take away your education. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, I have this question that I posed to you before the break, and I want to pose it to you again. I, I'm curious to know what your answers will be. It, and the question really is, you know, we've gotten a chance to talk about some of the things that are in place so that the outcome is that I learned about history as a, as a youth in the United States and the story of Native Americans and African Americans, black people, in the United States is covered in less than a page, right? And that's the outcome that we're at, that that is manifested. And so the question for you is, how do we reimagine education so that non-traditional methods are supported and elevated and, and, and those are also in place because communities may prefer to do it that way or because, yeah, I'm just curious to know Sure. How is it that we get there from your point of view? Well, you know, right now we're talking about um, the opening, reopening question because of the pandemic. You know, schools around the country, well, in Portland, I should say, have been closed for exactly a year. And uh, we have very loud voices calling for reopening. We have some communities of color that are saying, you know, our kids are actually safer not being in the building. And we have everything in between but what I've really been thinking about during this this uh, conversation about reopening is l- really reflecting back to MLC and the Metropolitan Learning Center and how going to a class was definitely de-emphasized. Even, you know, in a traditional school, if you don't show up, you're going to get a phone call. We never got a phone call. They just were, you know, make sure you turn your journal in on Friday one of the classes I took with a friend of mine, um, she, you know, kids could come up with co-create a class idea for an elective. One of the electives was how to change your clothes in the hallway. So let's say, you know, you're a teenager and you need to have four changes a day just because, you know, you're an adolescent. And this was like, how could you change your shirt without anybody knowing? And so there was literally an elective about that. I've given a lot of, a lot of thought in the last year to how we, how we educate kids and, I've been feeling very bad that kids are being educated on Zoom. I think it's really bad for us to be on, on, on Zoom all the time. And wondering why, as a community, we haven't figured out just to take a walk and to take care of your mental health and to volunteer for the senior. You know, like, I'm a senior. It's hard for me. I, I can still get out, but it would be nice if I had a kid in the neighborhood that said, 
you know, can I help you with your groceries? Um, to find ways to contribute, to learn from the earth, uh, to experiment, um, to go to the beach and, and just take a walk along the beach for the day. And why can't that substitute for the reading, writing, and arithmetic and really indoctrination, the sitting in a desk all day that I don't feel is serving not just the students very well, but it's not going to serve the workforce very well. Um, I feel like our priorities are in the wrong place. Uh, we should be community-focused right now and, and, and resilience-focused in terms of taking care of our own, our own sanity, mental health, uh, and wellness, and the wellness of our community. And instead, we've got people just really needing to get the kids back in school, um, very concerned about the social-emotional aspect when I feel like if the parents were... The, the parents have a lot to... Uh, they have a lot of jurisdiction and a lot of agency around how they show up and how they, uh, how their emotional, um, their emotional resilience. I also feel like kids nowadays don't have an opportunity to learn how to deal with a bad situation. And this is teaching kids how to like, it's life isn't all rosy. There are setbacks sometimes and you need to be able to have the experience dealing with a setback in life, not getting the job you wanted. Absolutely. I think mental health is ever more important now. And I could only emphasize that and say that I am still learning more about that. I'm not someone who's going to speak directly about this topic, but I do think it's important. And that's one of the, of the puzzles that I wanted to bring to the, to, to this thing we're analyzing around not only the prison pipeline, but then the pipeline that should be built to that is being built as we dismantle the prison to school pipeline, right? <laughs> yeah. What is the new, what, what's replacing the system? I, I'm is not that quite what you're sure. Asking like, what do you think? So we have a system in place and we, we, we already know what the outcomes are. There's a school to prison pipeline, but I'll tell you one of the statistics that was the most disarming for me to learn was we talked earlier about this third grade reading Mm-hmm. statistic that 19% of African-Americans in Portland were meeting that, 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 um, that, that marker. And I heard that prisons do their planning based on their community planning based on that number, that statistic of the number of third graders. So it's directly correlated. So if there's 81% of black third graders, they're going to probably guess that there's going to be more prison space needed. Mm. And I heard that and it just it broke my heart. Um, and I, I was skeptical of the of the statistic, but Yeah. So I mean it, it may be that there is a need to name a movement that will go hand in hand with the defunding and deconstruction of the prison to school pipeline. Just like I would argue maybe there isn't a need to innovate something new and we can just go back to what worked before, which is social systems within communities, within families. Maybe we don't have to reinvent the wheel there and we just have to look back at what was there before, right? Uh, and I'm not quite sure whether that's the right path or not, but the the, the piece that I do want to bring that I think could be really fundamental in how we make space for quote-unquote non-traditional methods, right, is and as it relates to the environmental movement, specifically environmental justice movement, is who do we put in books or who are we referring to when we're showing examples of the movement? Are we bringing in Bill McKibben or are we bringing in, I don't know, Cesar Chavez? Many people don't see Cesar Chavez as a environmental movement leader, right? Or an environmental oh, wow. justice movement leader. Yet it's when I, for example, with Presidio Graduate School, Sorry to pick on it, but it's the most recent example. Cesar Chavez is not on the timeline of the environmental movement, right? There are many folks that are not, folks would not consider environmentalists, but they're not in that movement. And so the, mom, the moment you put these individuals in books, in presentations, in conversations, in storytelling to other youth, and youth are able to see and relate to those people, that's the moment I think that you get youth more engaged that's the moment when youth see themselves and that goes a far long way because if i'm just seeing folks that i don't relate to 
then I lose interest, right? And mm -hmm. I'm all of a sudden saying like, well, I don't see myself in there. My community doesn't see myself in there. And so why, why should I even be part of that? So I, I think putting people in there and, and having them be representative of the youth who are trying to be there, or the case of me, I wanted to become someone who was influential in the environmental space. And I think that's why I have a, such a strong bond with you because I saw you in it and I was like, okay, well, she figured it out somehow and is still steadily going. So now I have something to grab onto, right? Per se, right? Yeah. And so without that, that's something that I had to build through, right? Connections that I had to make to eventually meet you. Yes. And it's not, it's not a school chapter. It's not a PowerPoint presentation. And... I think there's value there, right? It's relationships. Well, I mean, we when we talk about the environment, you're like what what is like people are part of the environment. The environment that's this this like very um I call it binary thinking and kind of the thinking of white supremacy culture where it's like you're in a box, it's either this or that. The environment includes people in it and things and 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 the earth and the air and and the plants and the birds and you know, it's, it's, it's who you include in your system. And if you're not including people of color in your system, you've got a system that's not going to be very resilient. It's just like a garden. If you look at a garden and you have a garden with all one plant and then a disease comes along and wipes out that plant, there's nothing left in its place. And so the idea about like just diversifying is strengthening. Diversity equals strength. Diversity equals resilience. Now, can we get the environmental organizations to do that? I mean, I think it's a little bit more trendy now. Hashtag, you know, Black Lives Matter. I just wish that every person in Portland that considered themselves environmentalist had a green flag next to their Black Lives Matter sign in their yard because then we could go back and say, hey, that's so great that you support black lives. How many people of color do you have on your staff? Oh, none? Because I know three people looking for work and that would actually, you should step down and shift power if you really want to change. You know, if you really care about climate change, you will find yourself something else to do and you'll elevate people of color. We've been talking about this for a very long time in the environmental movement and I haven't seen, I've seen a little bit of change, a little bit of performative allyship and not the system shifts that we would see, that we would expect for the concern for black lives. So I'm, I'm really holding people to, you know, if you believe that black lives matter, then, then you need to ask yourself the question if you're the right person in the seat at the right time. Yeah, absolutely. So for the youth who are listening to, to this show right now, maybe it's the first time they've heard of, of you. They may be walking their dog or multitasking, whatever it may be. They've gotten a chance to learn a little bit about who you are, Portland Public Schools, how we got to this outcome of, of a narrative that doesn't capture really what, what took place here in Turtle Island, all these other things we've discussed. What's your message to, to these youth? Well, I would encourage youth that are in school to get involved in student organizing. Uh, the students of Portland have come together with the administrations of their building in two cases to rename high schools, one for um, Ida B. Wells Barnett, who was a journalist who fought against uh, the KKK and was a journalist, and the other school recently renamed uh, that is named for a local African-American Portlander who was just a great person and a first in many areas. And so get involved in student organizing. Like the students are doing some crazy stuff right now. They've done some climate marches. They've done walkouts of school. This is the future that we are leaving for them. We need to let them lead on this. We need to help guide them and help them um, express their, you know, build their power. Um, we've had um, students that have been um responsible for getting some murals that um, depicted out, uh, Native Americans in a really bad light removed. Um, so the students have been doing great work. The climate change work is impactful. 
The anti-racism work is impactful. Get involved with your student unions. There's affinity groups for like Latinx, I don't like that word, Latino students, Native American students, African American students, Asian Pacific Islander students. Get involved and use your voice because your voice is important. This is your future we're talking about. I'm, I'm here to support it. Okay, well, yeah, I, I hope I have another opportunity to talk with you again. I would obviously love to have you on the show one more time because there's so much more to cover, right? And we, we, we're only doing uh, the very, we only see the, we, we've only been able to discuss the, the tip of the iceberg today. So thank you so much for being in the show, Michelle. What are some ways in which folks can stay in touch with you or find out more about the work you do in case they want to follow up? Gosh, that's a great, um, I just am in the midst of expanding my social media footprint. Um, I am on Facebook under my name, Michelle Depass. Um, I have a page there specifically for my Portland Public Schools work. I have Instagram and Twitter accounts. Um, my Twitter account probably has nine followers, so I'm not very active. Instagram a few more, but really active on Facebook. I do have, um, I have a G, an email address I can share, which is my name, mdpass at pps.net. That's uh, my Portland Public Schools um, activism. That's my board, um, my board address, mdepass at pps.net. Okay, well, thank you so much again, Michelle. And uh, yeah, really appreciate having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Alfredo. Okay, well, that was my conversation with Michelle DePaz. I, I am so thankful to have the opportunity to have her be a friend, a colleague, and, and someone who I look up to as I try to both understand my journey in, in an MBA program that, that I'm still reflecting on, as well as uh, someone who is a great practitioner of community engagement and how to really show up in, in communities to, to bring them along and, and build capacity for more conversations and, and having greater dialogue with deeper questions. So I hope you appreciated that conversation with Michelle and I. You have tuned into the Climate Frontline podcast. We are found in all major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can find us on our socials. We are at Climate Frontline Podcast or CFL Underline Podcast on Twitter. So be sure to follow us there. If you have a story or you have a question for Michelle and I or other community members, be sure to visit climatefrontline.com and drop us a voicemail in there. You have, again, tuned in to the Climate Frontline Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please share it with a friend of yours so they can have uh, a little bit of this discussion with Michelle and I. And as always, take care of yourself. I will see you next week at the next episode of the Climate Frontline. Take care. Bye-bye.